On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I want you to take note of that last verse that we just read, verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs or miracles uh, through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. It's kind of an interesting expression that John uses, and he uses it all through his gospel to describe the miracles of Jesus. The other gospels usually are translated, the word that's used is usually translated miracle, but John uses a different word, and it's translated in our English Bible's sign. So what does that mean? A miracle, of course, is simply a supernatural event, something that's out of the ordinary, and we normally would attribute that to the power of God, certainly in, in Scripture. But what is a sign? A sign is a miracle. The signs that John describes in his gospel are miracles, but when he uses this word sign, what he's saying is this is a miracle with meaning. And so we have to take note of that. It's not simply a miracle that would show us that Jesus is powerful or that he's divine. It's a miracle that tells us something about who he is and what he's doing. And so we want to take note of that as we consider this story. Verse 11 tells us that this sign or this miracle did two things. It revealed his glory, glory being beauty. The glory of God or the glory of Christ is the beauty of Christ, his beautiful character, his, his beautiful way of, of life. And this was revealed through these miracles, and notice his disciples believed in him. This is what I hope for this morning as we consider this story together, that we will see the glory of Jesus more fully and that this will produce encouragement and faith in us. Now, here's something that's really interesting. In his gospel, John describes seven signs. Some people would say eight. Generally, people say seven signs or seven miracles. So I want us to think about this. In chapter 20, verse 30, John says, uh, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So he did way more than seven signs. And then in chapter 21, John says this, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them was written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Now, maybe some hyperbole here, but the point is that Jesus did 
so many outstanding, amazing, incredible things. And we only have a snapshot, a few. John chooses seven miracles to write his gospel story about Jesus. What does that tell us about these seven? It tells us that these are very significant. And John has chosen them not just because they're amazing, but because they tell us something about Jesus that he wants us to know. And what does it mean that this is the very first? I mean, imagine if we were writing the story of Christianity or if we were writing the Bible and we were trying to think, what, what would we put down as the very first miracle of Jesus? Would it be a miracle where he turns water into wine? In our circles, probably not. We probably wouldn't, we might not have even told this story. We wouldn't want people to know about this one. But John chose this one and for very significant reason. So I tell you all this so that we can pay close attention as we consider this story. The story takes place at a wedding. What do we know about Jewish weddings? First of all, we know that Jewish weddings were a celebration. I had a prof in Bible college who, uh, when he taught me, had recently gone to Israel, and he had come across, in, in the tour that he was on, he and his team had come across an authentic Jewish wedding. And somehow this group of travelers, visitors, was kind of invited in and come and come and witness, come and be part of this wedding. And my Bible college prof was bragging about how he was learning to do all these Jewish dances with all of these people who were celebrating. And what's interesting about that is 2,000 years later, Jewish weddings still are similar to what they were 2,000 years ago. They were a celebration, a feast. You might even say, dare I say, a party. They would go on usually for a week. And Jewish weddings were a a fundamental component of Jewish life. Not surprisingly, because uh, the Jewish people believed in the Old Testament scriptures. They believed that marriage was something that God had designed and created first with Adam and Eve and then instituted that for, for all people and certainly for the Jewish people. This was a fundamental aspect of Jewish life. It was part of their culture. It was so important. Uh, People would look forward to these events. You can imagine these feasts would go on for a week. Uh, And a lot of people in that culture, they worked day to day so that they could eat day to day. You'd go out in the morning to work so that you could provide for your family, for yourself to have food for that very night. But here at a wedding, you got to spend the whole week celebrating with friends and relatives. You didn't have to worry about where the food was going to come from because it was going to be provided by the groom and his family. And that, by the way, is one of the reasons that in Jewish culture, there was always a a fairly lengthy time of preparation. And we know this from Bible stories, uh, even the story of, of Joseph and Mary, who had been betrothed, kind of like our engagement, They had committed themselves and their families had committed them to marry each other. They were kind of promised to each other. But then there was this period of time in which the groom, Joseph, or whoever the groom was, would be preparing for the wedding that was to come. That that could include preparing a house of some kind for he and his new bride to live in, but it also included preparing for the festivities. And you could imagine a week-long feast where you invited relatives, you invited friends. I don't know how many people would commonly be at this, probably like a lot of our weddings, where 
the, the more money you have available for the wedding, the more people you can invite. But the preparation was all about getting the food and the beverages and everything uh, in, it prepared so that this week-long festivity could be all that it was meant to be. Have you ever been to a wedding? I, I mean, this is still true for us. I mean, we, we go to a wedding and we go to a wedding reception if we, if we get invited to one. And, and uh, I know my wife and I were driving to the, the reception and we're saying, what do you think they're going to serve? Like, what, is it going to be roast beef? Is it going to be chicken? What's, what's it going to be? And generally, wedding receptions are incredible. It's amazing food. There's usually lots of it. But have you ever been to a wedding where the food is a little bit, dare I say, it's, it's just a little chintzy, you know? And, and you go through the buffet line, but they have people there dishing out the food so you can't get too much. So you get your little spoonful of potatoes and your little piece of ham. And, and then by the time you're finished your plate and you're thinking, well, surely there's, there's going to be seconds, but there's no seconds uh, even in our culture, we feel a little bit like, wait a second, I, you know, I, I bought a good gift for this couple. Like, what's, what's going on here? I expected a better meal. That was even more true in Jewish culture. So this wedding at Cana, we keep all of that in mind, and uh, we, we know what's about to unfold. But let me just point out, too, that this is a wedding that Mary and Jesus have been invited to. Cana was not far from Nazareth. Nazareth was Mary's hometown. That's where she grew up. It was Jesus' hometown. That's where he grew up. And so probably this is a wedding of some relative, maybe a cousin. We don't know for sure. But the way that Mary reacts in this wedding would suggest that this is someone that she's close to, and she wants this wedding feast to go off well. So Mary and Jesus are there. Uh, the disciples have been invited to join Jesus at this wedding. And the wine runs out. Now, we don't know which day of the wedding feast this was. I mean, the way you read this, <clears throat> it sounds to me like this was the first day of the wedding. That's the way it comes across to me, but we don't know that for sure. But the wine ran out. And hopefully, having described what I have to you about Jewish weddings and the expectation, you can imagine the embarrassment that was about to unfold. Now, it hasn't become common knowledge yet. Someone's gone to the wine vat or however they got their wine and there wasn't any there, and their assumption would have been, oh, well, there's obvious there's more wine, we just, just need to find out where it is. So who, who knows where the, the extra wine is? But Mary somehow knows, and, and the family's beginning to whisper that, oh my goodness, we're already out of wine. And Mary finds out about this, and we're going to see that she, she knows who to talk to about this problem. But I want us to just sit and feel the embarrassment for a moment. This was uh, a disgrace. It wasn't just an embarrassment, it was a disgrace in this culture. It, it, was, it was so shameful for a family to host a wedding. Imagine being the groom and the groom's family. And they have uh, brought this young woman to be this guy's wife, and all of her family is there and her relatives. And maybe on the first day of the wedding, they've already won a, run out of wine. What does that tell her parents and her family? It tells them that this poor girl is married into a family that is, is in poverty. Clearly, they, they can't provide for her. 
They can't even provide for a wedding feast. It would have been so shameful and so embarrassing. And some would say that this point of the story, this, this wedding that's run out of wine, is a really potent picture of what we experience in this world. And, and maybe this moment that we're living right now is, is an experience of that where, where we once felt blessing and prosperity and ease and comfort. All around us now, it's discomfort. And we feel the awkwardness and the pain of this. It's possible that this part of the story is actually meant to be a picture of life in this world. And that's one of the reasons why I believe that what we're experiencing today is uh, certainly uncomfortable and awkward and we want it to be over, but it's been such a good reminder for us that this world we live in, this is not eternity. This is not the end. This is not the goal. This is a broken world and we have broken bodies and broken lives, but there's a day coming when God is bringing redemption. So the wine runs out. Mary demonstrates her faith. Notice she says in verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, if this is the first miracle that Jesus has ever done, was Mary expecting a miracle when she went to Jesus and said, they have no more wine? I don't think she was. I think she'd seen Jesus live his life up to this point, his 30 years, and she'd watched him be someone who is considerate, who is a really good problem solver, who's industrious, who knows how to help people out of jams and has a heart to help people out of that awkwardness. So I don't think, Jesus, I don't think Mary knew what Jesus was going to do, and I don't think she was expecting a miraculous creation of wine, but she trusted Jesus to be someone who could solve this problem. So she informs Jesus of the problem. Then notice what she says to the servants. Verse 5, do whatever he tells you. I want you to think about that phrase for a moment. Do whatever he tells you. Now she's just telling this to the servants because she thinks he's going to come up with some plan or some idea of how they can solve this wine problem or he's going to find some wine somewhere. But she trusts him and she says something that really all of us need to hear and need to live. The secret to life, and we should know this as followers of Jesus, is to do whatever he says we should do. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, is that whatever he teaches, we learn and we live and we apply. We want to know what he knows and we want to do what he does. And when he says, jump, we say, how high? We trust Him. We obey Him. So Mary says to the servants, do whatever He tells you. I see faith in this. I see Mary recognizing Jesus to be who He really is. And yet we find what surely seems to us as a very awkward response. Verse 4. First of all, Jesus calls His mother woman. This is not the word that he would normally use to say mom. It's a word that simply means woman. It wasn't derogatory, except that he's speaking to his own mother. 
and yet he calls her woman. Then he says, and this is a difficult phrase to translate, but it's translated in my Bible, uh, why do you involve me? And that sounds harsh. And then he follows that up with this strange expression, my hour has not yet come. Now, when we read this, and I think even if, if we were reading this story when, it was first, when John first wrote it, we would feel the awkwardness of this, and I think we feel it even more in our culture all of these years later when we don't talk to our mothers this way and we don't, we don't say things like this to our It sounds disrespectful. So what is going on here? I want, to, I want to remind you about a few things that took place in the life of Jesus between him and his mom. There's a famous story in the Gospel of Luke, and really the only story we have between the birth of Jesus, uh, or at least when he's a you know, baby toddler, to when he's grown up. And it's a story that takes place when he's 12 years old, and his family goes down to Jerusalem for one of the feasts, and they're traveling with relatives and friends from up in Galilee, from Nazareth. And they go down for the feast, and then when it's time to head home, Mary and Joseph assume that Jesus is with them, but he's not, and they travel a whole day before they figure out that he's not there, and then they travel back, and it's three days since they've last seen Jesus, and they finally find him in the temple of all places, and he's talking with the the religious leaders and teachers. And Mary says to Jesus, son, how, how could you do this to us? And the Lord's response to her is, didn't you realize that I have to be about my father's business? Now, that's awkward too, because his human father's standing right there, it's Joseph. But what he's saying to his mother, and at that point his father, is you need to understand, yes, I have been born into your family, yes, in a sense, I am your son but I am not here to live a normal life. And I have responsibilities and tasks before me that are God-ordained. This is what Jesus is saying here. And when he says, woman, he's reminding his mother that she isn't just his mother and he isn't just her son. He's actually the son of God and he's here on a mission for God, to do the, the work of God. Same thing is going to, and by the way, we, we know that Jesus loved his mother and cared for his mother. One of the most touching and beautiful events in all the Bible is when Jesus is hanging on the cross in excruciating pain, and he looks down and he sees his mother Mary, and he sees John who wrote this gospel, and he introduces them to each other as mother and son. Doing that to care for his mother, to provide for her in her old age. He's about to be gone. And now he's saying, John, take my mother into your home. Adopt her as your mother. Mary, adopt John as your son. It's beautiful. But even then, he called her, in that moment, he called her woman. Same word. It's a reminder that he's, he's the son of God. He's here to do the work of his heavenly father. And that's what he's alluding to in these other two expressions. When he says, why do you involve me? Or what does that have to do with me? Some would argue that Jesus was, like many of us do, reminiscing, for those of us who go to a wedding and we're already married, 
we tend to, don't we? We tend to think back all those years to the day when we got married. Or if we're not married and we go to a wedding, uh, many of us, all of us, tend to look ahead and wonder what it would be like if we could get married or what, 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 what will that be like for us. And some would say that at this wedding, Jesus is looking ahead to his own wedding. Not a wedding that's going to take place on earth. No, Jesus didn't marry uh, Mary Magdalene, as some people tried to suggest in our day. But Scripture teaches us that, that the story of human history began with a wedding with Adam and Eve, and it ends with a wedding, Jesus and his bride. And when eternity is ushered in, the Bible describes it as a wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb, as we'll see in a few moments. So when Jesus says, what does that have to do with me? It's, it's almost like, and you can imagine someone saying this, hey, it's not my problem. This, this isn't my wedding. I am not the groom. I'm not the groom's immediate family. It's not on me to provide for this wedding feast. Acknowledging the fact that he has a wedding that's to come in which he will, yes, he will have to be the one to provide for his bride. And that's why he says the second phrase, my hour has not yet come. In a sense, it's like Jesus is saying, hey, this is not my time, this is not, it's not my wedding. But he's also saying something a little bit darker and perhaps you could say even more sinister, and, and that is that Everywhere else in the John's Gospel where Jesus refers to his hour, he's referring to the hour of his death. In Jewish culture, if a man was to marry a, a young woman, a price was paid to her father, a dowry of sorts. And Jesus here is saying, this is not my wedding. And in fact, this is not my hour Acknowledging that there would be a price to be paid for his bride that would literally cost him his own life. So this is strange. These are strange expressions. Why would he speak to his mother this way? Why would he say these things? I believe this is what he's saying. Now clearly he's not saying, I'm not going to do anything about this problem in this wedding. But he's pointing his mother and, by the way, his disciples who were watching over his shoulder and listening in. We know that from verse 11. They saw his glory and they believed in him. So they were learning from all of this. What he's pointing them to is the fact that there is a great wedding to come and there is a dowry to be paid. And that's the reason he's come. So what is he going to do? Jesus says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And verse 6 begins to tell us the story. Nearby stood six stone water jars. These literally were hewn or carved out of solid stone. They were the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now evidently, these water pots were empty because Jesus is going to say, you need to fill those up. And it's very, and you can't miss the fact that the, uh, 
the containers that Jesus is going to use to do this sign are these religious pots that Jewish people used. You might even remember a story in the Gospels where the Pharisees asked Jesus, hey, how come your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat? They were referring to this. They were referring to these kinds of washings and, and something you would do in these very pots. It was not something that was found in the Old Testament. There was other places in the Old Testament. The priests had to bathe when they were being inaugurated into priesthood and various things. But there was never a, this kind of washing. This is something that was added by the Jewish people. It was something that the Pharisees loved. It was, it was legalism. It was adding on to the beautiful Word of God for the purpose of feeling righteous about myself and feeling like I'm producing and, and cleansing uh, myself for this righteousness. But those pots were empty. I don't know why they were empty. But is it significant? Yes, probably John is writing these details into his story to show us that these ceremonial washing pots were empty in the sense of what they could actually do for someone. It was empty religion is what it was. And Jesus is going to use these pots, not to say that, yeah, we need these pots for ceremonial washing. No, they're not going to get used for that anymore. He's going to show that he has come to bring something far better than this legalistic religion of the Pharisees. So are these six stone water pots, they're sitting there empty, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. He told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And when they did so, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who drew the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have had, you have saved the best till now. Six stone water pots. And based on what we're reading here about how much the, they would hold, this was 150 gallons. According to the master of the feast, when he tasted the water that had been turned into wine... He says, this is, this is the best. You've saved the best for now. How much is that? 150 gallons is 567 liters. I wish I could picture that. I wish I had some kind of container so I could show you guys how much that is. Well, actually, now you know why there's a big blue barrel here this morning. How much does this hold? This is 55 gallons. Which means that those six water pots that Jesus used to turn water into wine would equate to about three of these barrels. How much is that? Well, I divided that up based on one of these. This is 1.89 liters. So Jesus made so much wine that 50 people could have one of these every day for six days. That is a lot of wine. I hope you can picture it. Now, before we get into the meaning of this, I just want to take a moment, and uh, I want us to ask this question, because this is a big question that we, we ask, and people debate and ask, like, did Jesus make, like, was it really wine, or did he make grape juice? 
Well, Luke 5, Jesus says this. He's talking about, he's using the analogy of wine and wineskins. So what is the best wine? He says, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. New wine, of course, is freshly squeezed grape juice. You don't pour that into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst because it ferments, that process of fermentation. It'll burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. It ferments, stretches those wineskins, but they don't burst. And then he says, no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. New wine is freshly squeezed grape juice, old wine is fermented grape juice. And so what he's saying here in Luke 5 is, in his culture, if you tasted something that you said, this is good wine, it wasn't the new stuff, it was the old stuff. So by all appearances, what Jesus created in those water pots was, yes, it was wine. So what does that mean for us? Many of us in our Christian culture and probably in this church would be very reticent about alcohol and we might question and even feel concerned, would Jesus really have created alcohol? And so let me just remind you of a few things. Number one, the Bible does not condemn the use of alcohol. Paul said to Timothy, use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. But it does, second point, it warns against the dangers of alcohol. We see this numerous times in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, beer, a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. So here is Scripture acknowledging that there are dangers associated with alcohol. And then, of course, the Bible forbids drunkenness. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. So, we can't use the Bible to say that, you know, God absolutely forbids the use of alcohol, but we certainly should use the Bible to caution against the use of alcohol and absolutely to forbid the use of alcohol to the point of drunkenness. Now, here's a point I want us to consider, though, and that is that the use of alcohol in biblical cultures was very different from our own culture. What did people do at these weddings? What, what were the options? Well, you could have water from a well, hopefully good water, hopefully clean water. Maybe you could have some milk if it was really fresh, but of course, that's not going to last very long in that culture where there's no refrigeration. The reason why wine was so prevalent is because you could make it and it would, it would preserve. You didn't have to have refrigeration. Um, they didn't have uh, processes like we have to um, process milk or process other kinds of juices so that they wouldn't spoil. And so that's one of the reasons why wine was so prevalent in that culture. We see this around the world, uh, European cultures. It's very normal to have a glass of wine uh, at a dinner, uh, simple supper meal or dinner meal. I would suggest that in our culture, for, for some, not all, but in our culture, the use of alcohol is very different. In our culture, and all you have to do is look at the way that alcohol is advertised, and we realize that in our culture, for many, alcohol is very much about the party, about feeling good. Many people in our culture use alcohol to numb 
the experiences of life. And none of that is something that we can use the Bible uh, to, uh, uh, to affirm. It doesn't. So it, this calls for wisdom and, and tactfulness. What I would say is that the alcohol content of wine in the day of Jesus was much less than it would be in a common bottle of wine for us today. I don't know the exact amount, but it was, it was much lower. Uh, strong wines were watered down. And uh, so at a wedding like this, probably it would have been wine with very low alcohol content. By the way, though, uh, when the master of the banquet tastes the wine, didn't realize where it comes from, verse 10, he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. The word that's used here is a word for intoxication. So clearly the expectation at a wedding was that there would be alcoholic content in, in the wine. I want to get back to the story and ask, why is this miracle a sign? What is Jesus using this to point us to? And I've mentioned this already, number one, Jesus knew his wedding day was coming. He could say to his mother, why do you involve me or my time has not yet come? And he's looking forward to a day when it will be his turn to have a wedding. I've mentioned already his hour, often speaking of his suffering at the cross, Jesus knew what his bride would cost him. And then finally, this point, and this is the one I want us to focus on for a few moments as we close. Jesus knows how to host a banquet. I want us to think about this. Jesus knows how to host a banquet. He knows how to provide for, uh, for festivities, for a celebration. We see this, by the way, all through Scripture, not just of Jesus, but of God. Think back to Genesis. God said to Adam and Eve, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Then this one, I find this astounding. Deuteronomy 14 is describing a very special kind of tithe. We don't talk about this much. We don't think about this. This is one of the tithes that God instituted in the law. And it was a tithe of celebration. Deuteronomy 14. This is a description for people who lived uh, long distances from Jerusalem if they did, uh, they could uh, change their tithe into silver, bring it to Jerusalem, and then buy, God says in his word, buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, other fermented drink, or anything you wish, then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Think about this. What is a tithe? A tithe is 10% of my income that belongs to God. What does God do with that tithe? He gives it back to his people and says, I want you to come and be with me in Jerusalem near my tabernacle and we're going to celebrate. This is the heart of God. Perhaps most famously in Psalm 23, the psalmist says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The table here is referring to a feast. God preparing a feast for his people. Notice, in the presence of my enemies. The songwriter here is picturing those who hate God 
those who hate Him. And they look and they see God preparing a feast for His people, His children. This is God's heart for us. Isaiah 25, verse 6, speaking of a future day. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. You can see why it's a little bit difficult to use the Bible to say that, uh, that, to say that you, can't, you can't use wine. It's all through these. And by the way, wine in these instances is, is a symbol of celebration, feasting in the presence of God, of joy. This is God's plan. Notice that God isn't just simply at the table feasting with us. He's actually the, he's the chef. He's the server. God knows how to spread a feast. Then think about some of the other miracles of Jesus. Miracles that we know so well. You grew up in the church. We saw these on the flannel board in Sunday school. The feeding of the 5,000, they all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000, of course, besides women and children. Feeding of the 4,000, same deal. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000. You know what's beautiful about having leftovers? I mean, it's beautiful to have those leftovers. I, I live in a family with five kids. I go to the fridge looking for leftovers, and they're gone. But the beauty of leftovers isn't just that we get to, we get to have this good food again. The beauty of leftovers is that it's a symbol of extravagance. When God puts on a feast, when God sets a meal before His people, there is always more than enough. That's the heart of God. He's an extravagant God. He is a generous God. Think about this miracle. This one's a little bit different because we don't actually hear about what happens with all these fish, but they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break, so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. This is the story where Jesus calls these fishermen to be his disciples. He says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, and the story says they pulled the boats and the fish up on shore, and they left everything. So what happened to the fish? Well, we know from the story there was a huge crowd of people there listening to Jesus teach. The fish didn't go to waste. The same thing in John 21, where the miracle of the fish is repeated, this time after the Lord's death and resurrection. Peter and some of the other disciples are out fishing, and they don't catch anything all night, and then someone on the shore, who could it be, says, throw your net on the other side of the boat, and they catch this huge net full of fish. It's Jesus. They come to shore, and they find Jesus. Yes, it was Jesus, and he's, he's got a fire on, he's got a little campfire going on the beach, and he's already got fish, don't know where he got his fish from, he's already got some cooking, and then he says to Peter, go get some more of those fish. So Peter climbs back into the boat, he drags the net ashore, it was full of large fish, 153, and Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Is there anything greater, more enjoyable, uh, 
that communicates love and care more than someone saying, come on, I, I, I want to feed you something. Some of our mothers do that, right, to our own detriment. I try to blame my wife for uh, feeding me too well. It's my fault. Feeding others, setting a table of good food before others, is something that all of us love. It's one of the things that we're frustrated with right now, is that we can't gather with friends and family. We can't even have a barbecue. We love that. We love to gather and eat. Why is that? It's something that God has put into us, and it should tell us about a future time when God intends to spread a feast for His people, and that's the way the Bible ends. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19.9. The culmination of all of history is a feast. History begins with a wedding, with a garden feast. Adam and Eve joined together, man and wife. God saying, look at this garden, you can, you can just enjoy it, feast. And the Bible ends and history ends with a wedding, the wedding of Jesus to his bride, his people, and again, a feast. This is our hope. This is why the turning of water into wine was a sign. It wasn't just a miracle that showed the disciples that Jesus could do amazing things. He's got powers, he's got special powers. It was a sign that revealed His glory. Remember I told you about that? What is the glory of Jesus? It's His beauty. And what makes Jesus beautiful? It's His kindness. It's His generosity. It's His heart to give. It's His desire. Just like He said before the Last Supper, He says to His disciples, I have deeply desired to eat this supper with you. And he deeply longs to eat this eternal supper with all of us, all who are his children. This is the glory of Jesus. And when he sets his spread before us, there are plenty of seconds and thirds. The food and the wine will not run out. And though our best efforts come up empty, when we try to find joy and peace and security in this world, we are like those empty water pots. Jesus says, I can do better than that. And this is why he's saying to us, follow me to the feast. I know there's something in you that longs for satisfaction. Many theologians have said it's like we, we have this God-shaped hole in our hearts and only Jesus can fill it, and He will, if we would trust Him. If we would turn away from our empty religion, our efforts to purify ourselves, if we would turn away from materialism, our desire to try and please and provide for ourselves, to come up with security and happiness, but to realize that all of those efforts comes up empty, the wine runs out, the joy is gone, but in Jesus, the great provider of every need we could ever have and so much more 
says to us, come follow me. Turn from your sin, turn from your empty efforts to find meaning in this world, turn to me and I will provide all that you need. This is the great hope of every believer. I should maybe end there, but I'm not going to. I want to ask us to consider one last thing. If we are the people of the feast, if we are the ones who know the extravagance of Jesus, if we understand that He has gone to His hour, given His life to pay the dowry, the bride price for us, His people, the question becomes, what is our role now? We are in this period of time between when Jesus paid the dowry and when he returns for his bride. What are we supposed to be doing right now? And the, of course, the answer to that is that we are supposed to be inviting others to the feast. And I want us to think about this. How did Jesus do that in his life? What was his favorite way to invite unbelievers to this great feast at the end of time. Do you know what it was? It was a feast. It seems like his number one chosen way to share the gospel with people, not just verbally, but to put it on display, was to sit around a table or to gather with a group of people and eat. And the reason I share this, and of course one example is uh, the calling of Levi. Jesus saw a tax collector sitting at his tax booth. Matthew, Levi, says to him, uh, follow me. And Levi gets up and leaves everything and follows. And then Levi holds a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. The Pharisees come and say to the disciples, how come, how come he eats with these sinners and his answer, of course, was, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. His number one chosen way to meet people who he wanted to invite to the feast, to, uh, to, to invite them to this eternal feast, was to throw a little feast of his own. I say this because we can do this. I know a man in, uh, way up in Timmins, He's actually a provincial judge, and I think he's probably retired now. And for his whole working career, virtually every day, he would take someone out for lunch. And he would say, well, you've got you to gotta eat lunch anyway. Sometimes it was someone from the church. Sometimes it was a young believer that he was encouraging. Often, it was someone who didn't yet know Jesus. He'd just take him out for lunch. He'd buy they talk and talk about life, and, and over the course of the meal, he would look for opportunities to invite this person to Jesus, to the feast. And I have never seen or known a church anywhere, even though in Timmins, where there's so much turnover and the mining industry and people come and go, I've never known of a church where so many people have been saved. And a lot of it is because they were saved across the table from a man who was sharing Jesus with them and they came to Jesus believing that that's just what you do. He 
You sit at a table with people and you share Jesus as you share food. And this is something we can do. A lot of us say, well, I don't, I don't know all the verses to quote. I, I, don't, I don't know how to answer people's questions. I don't know the best way to start a conversation. And Jesus says, open your home. Have someone over. Take someone to Tim Hortons. We can do that. What better way is there to invite someone to the great feast of God than to place a little coffee or a a donut or a plate of food in in front of them and say, I care about you and Jesus cares about you. We can do this. Jesus says, follow me to the feast. This is our great hope, this is our great encouragement that in spite of whatever is going on in the world and all of our discomfort and frustration, there is a time coming and hopefully we pray soon, Jesus, where he returns for his people and we gather with him for the marriage supper of the Lamb. But for now, for now he's left us here and we get this great privilege of inviting others to be part of this wedding and this feast. May God help us. May God help us to follow Jesus to the feast and to invite many others. Let's sing.